On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. So let's begin. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me, as usual, is the king of thieves, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I'm pretty good, Doug. You know, I'm, I've uh, had a pretty nice day. I'm enjoying this. I don't know what it's like where you're at. It might be terrible. Here it is nice weather, and so I, I've been trying to enjoy that while still keep up with my various quarantine-related responsibilities. Yeah, so at the time that people are hearing this, I imagine that they will all still be quarantined. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I've heard some people who have been listening to podcasts recently are getting really bummed out because all of the podcasts are also mentioning the fact that there is a global pandemic happening. And I just want to, A, it's going to date us terribly, or maybe it won't, which would be even more depressing. And B, you know, I just want to not be a, a bummer for a person to listen to, especially not today, especially when we're here celebrating Dick Miller Liam. I get that. I think uh, it really depends on the podcast. For our podcast, um, we're really just here to talk Dick Miller, and we don't get very personal. But if you're listening to a podcast in which their personality is part of the show, I don't know why you would expect them not to talk about the horrifying global pandemic <laughs> changing all of our lives. I just feel like expecting them to ignore that reality is a bit unfair. I mean, granted, if it's a podcast about like uh, video games and they never talk about themselves, then I get it. But uh, yeah, I've heard people complain too, and I'm like, it really depends on the context of the show. Particularly because a lot of the podcasts I listen to are done in person. They aren't uh, crossing country lines like ours is. So they now have had to find other ways of recording their podcast. All the more of a distraction, Liam. Well, and I also think you, you, there has to be some acknowledgement of the reality, especially if you're doing like a comedy podcast. Like mm -hmm. the first the first pandemic episode of a few of my favorite comedy podcasts was kind of like, hey, guys, is anything funny right now? Are we allowed to be funny? Is there still humor? What, what can we do that's still funny in this situation? And as much as it was a goof, it was a goof, I think, that like acknowledges the fact that maybe a lot of us like we need a distraction, but we don't want to pretend like nothing's wrong. I mean, I guess that's fair enough. I do want to, before we get to our very important guest, who's waiting very, very, very patiently at the moment. Liam, how is your young daughter dealing with all of the changes that are going on in the world? I like how you were like, I don't want to get too dark. Let me ask the hardest possible question that could only have the darkest answer. No, I mean, uh -huh. she's she's mostly she's mostly great. She's you know, she's three. So she's very resilient. But do I do I think that she's feeling the change in her schedule and her inability to see friends and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's a lot right now, but we're trying to make it as light and fun as possible. We're treating every day like an opportunity to do fun things. And then also in the midst of that, trying to maintain a schedule for her. So there's some like continuity, but it, it's weird. You know, she's a naturally friendly kid. So the idea that she can't just go up and meet new people we meet out in the world has been an awkward thing. Liam, can you answer that question again, except in a way that's more interesting and less dark and depressing? Oh, yeah. We just pretended that everyone's right, playing a enough. big game okay. of hide-and-go-seek. That's, okay, that, that's actually pretty good. Our guest today is Winnipeg-based director and writer, among other things, Calum Vatnestal, the author of the definitive work on Canadian horror that came from within, as well as, and most relevant to us today, You Don't Know Me But You Love Me, The Lives of Dick Miller. How are you doing today, Calum? I'm doing fine, thanks. Calum, you love Canadian horror movies. I do. It's true. Even after writing a book on them, I love them, which is incredible. Uh, there's so much in your career that I'd love to di dip into. Uh, today, we're here to talk about Dick Miller generally, but I should, I don't want to be that kind of person to just like, hey, how'd you get interested in this and this and this? But I do want to talk about living in Winnipeg and what is unique about that. Uh, uh, you know, it's interesting that a lot of the creative forces that I am most closely aware of that have come from Winnipeg seem to have a love-hate relationship with that area. Do you feel that yourself? Do you have a love-hate relationship with Winnipeg? Yeah, I guess I do. I mean, uh, it's hard not to. Everyone, it's part of, I think it's just part of the, the DNA of people who, who live here, or who've grown up here especially. It's just, you know, it's, um, it's very cold sometimes. It's extremely uh, remote from almost any other city you could name and um it's just so it's its own thing it's its own little world and there's a lot to love and then a lot to be kind of or resentful about that but then be proud of that resentment and proud of the privation and proud of whatever makes it hard so you know there's and that's 
that's more or less bullshit, of course, but uh, <laughs> it gets us through the day. Do you think that that remoteness and that coldness fuels a lot of the art that comes out of Winnipeg? Yeah, I mean, that's the standard line, but it also happens to be true. It's because, you know, there, there are long days and nights indoors uh, when it's too cold to go out. So, you know, this whole global pandemic thing that you guys were uh, mentioning is not that I mean, it sounds like a joke, but it's really not that much of a change, especially coming out of the winter as we are. You know, people mm. were staying indoors and, and doing their own thing anyway. Now, Caleb, you have a lengthy relationship with the director, Guy Madden. Uh, you've acted in his work. You've, uh, you've, you've made documentaries about his work. Wh- where did that relationship begin? Is, is it, in my mind, I'm thinking like every talented artist within the Winnipeg area, they all know each other in some way. Am I being ridiculous in thinking that? No, not at all. It's a very insular kind of a community, again, because of the remoteness and so forth. But also, um, you know, I mean, there were there's a place called the Winnipeg. There is a place called the Winnipeg Film Group, a great and storied organization. And uh, just about anyone interested in film, um, you know, through the 80s and 90s was was a part of that and worked out of there. And, you know, um, so I got to know Guy through that, I guess, or maybe through I was a I worked at a video store that he came in. I don't know. We just became acquaintances and then friends and then began working together a lot um he was you know he would very kindly hire me on to uh, act or or to even shoot or work on various parts of his films and it was uh it was great is i think guy madden for people who don't live in canada he has this if he has a reputation for anything at all if you're aware of who he is and liam i know you don't know enough about guy madden makes me feel very sad to be hosting a podcast with you, but that he he has a very kind of interesting, unique personality. I remember uh, a film that I think that you did uh, some work on, uh, the documentary um, Waiting for Twilight. I remember seeing that in the late 90s, and that was maybe my first exposure to Guy as a filmmaker. Uh, I just hadn't, maybe I think I'd read something about Tales from the Gimli Hospital, but I hadn't really seen his work before, and I saw that, I'm like, this is an interesting creative force. Did you, when you first, you know, interacted with him, did there seem to be something off kilter or is there something off kilter just about a lot of the people who were part of that film group in Winnipeg? Yeah, it's the latter. He doesn't, he doesn't, uh, he and his work didn't strike me the least bit strange. Um, it's, uh, again, I mean, he, he was, um, I was already familiar with people like John Pays, another filmmaker who was mm. influenced on, on Guy and, uh, and, you know, so that was already, it was already in the air, uh, Guy was not by any stretch a like a, a coattail rider on John or anything like that. He was doing his own thing, but it was all of a similar flavor, so it didn't seem outrageous at all. You know, when you when you when you saw his movies or the weird sets that he worked on or the way that he works. Um, you know, when I started working on other movies, I realized how uh, kind of glorious and special the, uh, the that Madden world was, but. Uh, uh, no, it didn't seem strange or uh, unusual. And then again, it's one of those things, you know, people everywhere, but maybe particularly in Winnipeg, grasp onto whatever they can to be proud of. And that weirdness is is just another thing that we're all very, very proud of uh, for its own sake. Before we started recording, Caleb, I said that you seemed like the most Winnipegian person I can think of because of your connection to Guy Madden, because you've uh, worked uh, documentary-wise with the Uyghurvans, and because you have this interest in Canadian horror, a lot of things that kind of intersect in my own mind when I think of Winnipeg. But that's why it seems to me that it kind of comes out of left field that you then wrote a book about Dick Miller. Where did that kind of transition happen? Uh, was it just about kind of expanding uh, or, or working on something that might have interest that would hold a little bit further than along the country lines and with your end, which is not to say that there aren't people in the U.S. that are interested in Canadian horror or the weaker thans or Guy Madden. But, you know, Dick Miller is a actor that has a really strong reputation in cult movie circles, in horror movie circles, in people who are interested in film history. Uh, but they don't it doesn't seem to have that Winnipeg connection that the rest of your work does. That's very true. And I guess that might have been there. Maybe there was an urge to break away from not just Winnipeg, but you know, outside of Canada kind of stuff, but it wasn't a a conscious thing. It was just, I mean, I, Dick Miller was, I mean, the the short story, the short form of the story, I guess, is that I was reading a number of biographies and I thought, man, I'd like to write a, write a biography of my own. Who should I write a biography of? Mm. 
And uh, first and only person I really thought of was uh, was Dick because he was my favorite actor and is my favorite actor. And uh, I thought, man, um, that would be that would be great. The the movie about him, that guy Dick Miller, had not come out yet. I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. So it, he seemed to me to be you know pretty undocumented and in need of uh, a good telling of his life. So I thought I'll I'll throw myself into this and. And there we go. I mean, he's in, and you're right. He's uh, he's not. He's a pretty American guy. He's about as American an actor <laughs> as you can get outside of John Wayne or something, um, just because of that great Bronx accent and, and stuff. But he did marry a Canadian. His wife Laney is a Toronto girl, so um, there was a Canadian connection. I didn't even know it. <laughs> uh, one of the great things about reading "You Don't Know Me But You Love Me" is that this is a biography of Dick Miller, an actor that I already obviously had a lot of interest in, but because he has this kind of Zelig-like aspect to his career where he intersected with so many other filmmakers, uh, because he was part of that Roger Corman group that then kind of splintered out and really, you know, especially in the 1980s, really kind of took over Hollywood filmmaking, that even if you don't have a specific interest in Dick Miller, there's so much to grasp onto, there's so many interesting anecdotes, there's so much, you know, kind of background information about these other things that people could uh, find interest in when you obviously since he was a favorite actor of yours knew that going in what was the biggest surprise that came from all of the research that you did going into this uh, book well in general terms the biggest surprise was how much there was like I didn't know much mm -hmm. about his life I knew he was a longtime actor and I knew the the basics of where he had come from and when he got into acting and so forth but I didn't realize there was this entire rich life uh, that he lived um, before he even got to uh, to Los Angeles. Uh, I didn't realize how. Again, like like you say that. Uh, I mean, I've I've used the uh, the Forrest Gump analogy more than the Zelig one, I guess. But they both they both apply. That he's he was right there at the beginning of television. He was he was hanging out with Steve McQueen and Sammy Davis Jr. and all these and you know Mel Torme and. Uh, Frank Sinatra, you can name all these people that he was just sort of hanging out with in New York before they were famous. And, um, you know, none of that, uh, I, was, I wasn't the least bit aware of that. I, didn't, I thought I'd sort of blow through the early years of his life until, and then concentrate on Roger Corman and everything else. But uh, the fact that there was this entire other uh, storied and relevant life before that was amazing. So today we're going to talk about A Bucket of Blood, a really kind of a formative movie in Dick Miller's career, maybe the most formative, uh, depending on your perspective. You Obviously, this is a movie that you have a lot of knowledge about. In terms of people who might not know Dick Miller's career, how important was A Bucket of Blood going forward? Well, it was um, not his first starring... Well, it was, it was a big one for him. He was, uh, he'd played sort of lead roles before. But never really the, the the central star like he was in Bucket of Blood. And he really wouldn't do that again, actually, after Bucket of Blood. So it's sort of a peak in terms of his presence in a in a in a film. And his importance as a you know, the importance of his talent, I guess, because he really carries the movie. If he was if he dropped the ball and was no good, that movie would not work at all. And uh, the fact that he does such an amazing job in it really carries the thing. So he, it's, uh, it's a proving ground for him, I guess. He proved that he could carry a movie um, and, uh, and that he could play tragic and funny and, and uh, threatening and uh, every, all that at the same time. I mean, it's really an amazing performance when you, when you break it down. So he basically, it's important because he proved himself there. And, uh, and the movie lives on in large part because of that performance. You know, this is something that I was going to touch on after we talk about the movie proper, but I think this might be a good space to do it. You touch on this in your book, the idea that maybe because of where Dick Miller was in his life after A Bucket of Blood was released, that he didn't have maybe the ambition at that time, maybe that's not the right word, to use that as a launching pad because he was getting good reviews for his performance in that movie to maybe break outside some of the lower budget work that he was doing at that time. Do you think... That Dick Miller could have, you know, with maybe if he didn't have a you know young family at the time, maybe if he was more interested in doing auditions, that he could have broken out 
of that mold in a similar way to some the way that maybe like Jack Nicholson would do later on? I think he could have, but it would have required, um, you know, a certain amount of of luck as well as the talent because talent on its own and sure. a, a showcase for that really wasn't enough at the time or any time. Um, you know, I mean, there was a stigma about the actors as well. Anyone who was working regularly for AIP, there's a lot of stories of, of these actors, Richard Devon and other people like that, going and auditioning for other things. And some of them managed to make a make careers as sort of character actors like Mel Wells and stuff at the time, but most of them were just rejected because they were associated with these with these drive-in, you know, cheapies. And um and and other like producers of larger films didn't want to taint their movies with these people. So it was kind of, a, you know, stardom in a Roger Corman film was not necessarily a, a real career booster uh, all mm. the time. And I think that was, and when you combine that with, I mean, Dick was a, a, a lazy man by his own admission. Um, <laughs> he just didn't, you know, didn't give a shit really. And as far as he wasn't a careerist um, and he had regrets about that. But uh, he also just, he was much, much more than, you know, than an act, than just an actor. Uh, that was sort of what he did to occasionally pay the bills. I mean, when you think about it, you look at, you look at a Dick, Dick Miller's filmography and you see that he did, oh, he did five movies in 19, you know, uh, 59. But each of those took a day or two days maybe <laughs> to shoot, which leaves, you know, 300 and 40 days in the year where he just went to the beach and, uh, or went to Schwab's drugstore or something like that. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, it's, uh, the acting is as much as we think of it as his persona. Now, back then, that was something he did, uh, for, you know, one sixtieth of the year. You know, before, we started Cinema Smorgasbord. Liam and I, for a lengthy amount of time, did a podcast devoted to Eric Roberts, the actor Eric Roberts, who has... Fucking man. The, the fucking man, exactly. Uh, and it it's a very interesting... I hate to use the word devolution because it, it it's really unfair to Eric Roberts as a performer. But, you know, someone going from a, being a leading man, being a Hollywood performer, whose career has taken a different turn. And now he does do a lot of, of those kind of Dick Miller-ish... Uh, roles as a uh, both a supporting actor as a character actor and really just coming on and doing a couple of days and then moving on to other projects but it's it's interesting that those sort of roles even exist uh, at this time in the year like 2020 but of course Eric Roberts does it so much that he just works constantly and I just wonder you know I, I picture a world where Dick Miller maybe had uh, a little bit more, again, I'm, I don't want to use the word ambition. I think maybe, you know, uh, him not being a careerist is exactly the perspective I should take, where how much more Dick Miller there could have been if that's what he wanted to pursue a bit more. But then again, contentment and uh, uh, happiness with the career that you have, I think, is more important than anything else. And he was a person who seemed to be very proud of the work that he did and proud of the career that he had. Is that what you took away from your experience with him? Yeah, I think that that came later. Like he, uh, for many, many years, he was just, you know, this, this, uh, uh like blue collar guy who went to mm -hmm. work occasionally. Uh, but he definitely, by the time I got to know him, he was certainly proud as he, as he well should be of his body of work. And yeah, occasionally, you know, people who, uh, love his work like myself and, and you guys, uh, you know, it's possible to feel disappointment and even a little resentment that he didn't try a little harder and and uh not just of him but of the all the directors who didn't hire him and but should have i mean i have a whole list in my head of movies he should have been in where he you know um but wasn't and um it would just be nice to have a, a lot more dick miller performances in the world but uh, uh i do have to take a little uh, uh make a little side trip here and ask if you guys talked about a talking cat your <laughs> we were lucky enough oh. to <laughs> we were lucky enough to have uh midnight madness programmer peter kaplowski join us to talk about a talking cat and a halloween dog another david dakota film uh from around the same time period both of which feature eric roberts in a talking animal role so yes i think i i wouldn't call myself the world's uh expert on a talking cat but it is certainly a film that because of its connection with at least the modern 
pop culture version of Eric Roberts. It's a movie I'm pretty intimately familiar with. David Dakota is a, a good friend of mine, and he gave me a – so I have a DVD copy signed by with his – whatever his director's pseudonym was on a talking cat. So it's a, it's a, a proud possession of mine. So was As, that was that the film that um, Eric Roberts did all the the voiceover work in D- David Dakota's bathroom? Someone in the bathroom, yeah. He just went in there with a, like a Zoom recorder or something and did his <laughs> his entire role. It was. Uh, I felt like that story was apocryphal. So when we when Liam and I got the opportunity to talk to Eric Roberts directly. Uh, at the Music Box Theater in Chicago, we asked him, you know, was this true? Did you record in a bathroom? And he was, not only was did, what, did he confirm the story, but he seemed pleased by it. I think this is the kind of thing that adds a little bit of color and interest to a lengthy career that you can just, I mean, talk about a, um, a Corman-esque attitude towards the process of movie making. We have Eric Roberts, I'm at his house already, or maybe he's at my house. Let's just go make a movie. I think probably a similar perspective. I don't know if you've ever seen this one, Calum, but um, David also made a movie called Bigfoot versus D.B. Cooper. <laughs> yeah, I, which... I'm aware of that one. I don't. I have not seen it, but I'm certainly aware of that one. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> well, I wouldn't call it one of Eric Roberts' finest roles, um, but it certainly is a unique animal uh, and one that has a very... I think the kind the people who like that movie probably really really like it, uh, and then other people might be a little confused by it. But I mean, that's what makes the the this, this whole wonderful world of genre filmmaking so interesting. That uh, everyone's every movie is someone's favorite. You know, that's a cliche, and I don't actually know if I believe in that cliche. But you know, there's a lot of movies out there that have their defenders and fandoms, and and I like to think that I appreciate that, uh, even in with a movie like Bigfoot versus DB Cooper, which that's that can be a difficult watch at times. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it was made in like two a day or two days, something like that. I mean, so. In the same house that Dave was making a lot of his movies at that time, in uh, the one that features in a talking cat and a Halloween puppy, uh, that house also features in Bigfoot versus DB Cooper, and in a number of other movies he was making at that time. My understanding is that that house might have actually burned down during the uh, fires in 2019, uh, which would be a real shame. Uh, but uh, at least it lives on in I think maybe a dozen movies that were <laughs> shot in and around uh, that that particular location. And you know what, Caleb? Now that I know that you have an interest in David Dakota, I could literally talk to you for hours about that. But unfortunately, Mm-mm, we no. need to take... <laughs> Liam would go crazy. But also, we need to take a break. When we return, we're going to get in deep. We're going to talk about 1959's A Bucket of Blood. Join us right after this. The artist... Your model, who loves to show it. You suppose he could be physically attracted to her? No, man, he ain't the type. You don't get enough vitamin E. All these are beat. All these you'll meet in a bucket of blood. Let us make the scene. Crazy. Enjoy yourself. (laughs) Where the hilarious enjoy the horrifying. In a bucket of blood. No, you're gonna shoot me! Don't shoot! A dim-witted busboy finds a claim as an artist for a plaster-covered dead cat that is mistaken as a skillful statuette. The desire for more praise soon leads to an increasingly deadly series of works. It's a bucket of blood from the year 1959. Uh, maybe one of the more uh, well-known Dick Miller roles that we're likely to talk about on this podcast. Of course, directed by Roger Corman and written by Charles B. Griffith uh, before he made Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, Liam, we're going to talk about this movie in a lot of detail. Of course, we want to get Caleb's uh, perspective on it. But before we do that, especially because I talked so much in that in- introductory segment, Liam, what are your thoughts on A Bucket of Blood? You know, this is definitely not a, a horror movie from 1959 directed by Roger Corman is uh, actually not something that I would be always excited about. Um, I'm, I'm, I have really mixed fe- feelings on Corman's work and especially um, – at this time period. So I went in with a bit of skepticism thinking, well, Liam, I love- not to interrupt you, but all I can hear is the booze from the people listening right now. When no, you that's say fine. these horrible things, but it's, it's fine. People should just know where I'm at, which is that that's not really my vibe. And yet, you know, I love Dick Miller. So I thought, well, this is great. It's going to be good because of him, but you know, whatever. And, uh, I really, really, really enjoyed this movie. Um, I think the humorous, 
uh, take on the beatnik culture uh, really keeps the film going. Um, I think Dick Miller's performance is really engaging and and silly in a in a really great way that like helps the movie go. I think um, the despite the the kind of humorous tone of the film, the actual sculptures and his presenting of them is still kind of upsetting even now. Um, and so the, there's enough there that I was more than amused for a film that's it's actually pretty short. You know, I don't know how much more they could have done, but uh, I, I loved it. And, and you know, like I said, this is not usually my, my vibe, uh, but I thought it was really well done. Um, and I, you know, I couldn't help but think uh, I kind of wish I had more feelings about beatniks. Like, I feel like this is a film <laughs> sort of caricaturing a, a, a time and a place where I'm like, I don't really care. You know, like, I don't have strong feelings one way or the other. Um, I like Lawrence Ferlinghetti. That's about my input on the beatniks. I went to his bookstore in San Francisco. That's about it. That's about all I got. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think if I was in that moment and I had some uh definite opinions about beatniks i think this movie would be even better it would it would it would be <laughs> hilarious in its in its in its mockery of those do nothing uh fake artists i think I, that's how i would feel at the time probably uh and their and their money and their h all doing h and sipping espresso i don't know i don't know, I don't know if i would care or not but but I, it, it was interesting to be fully amused despite my being largely unfamiliar with the thing it was kind of uh, making a mockery of. It's interesting to hear you say that. I mean, I maybe have a little bit more interest in the beatnik culture than yourself. I, I like a lot of the folk music that came out of that era. Uh, and I certainly, while I'm, not, while I wouldn't say I'm, I'm intimately knowledgeable about beat poetry, it is something that I have a lot of respect for. And the culture that this all evolved out of is part of what we're seeing being mocked in a bucket of blood. And I think that that satirical angle is one of the most interesting things historically about watching this movie. Now, Caleb, when you watch A Bucket of Blood, I guess I have two kind of introductory questions. A, where do you rank it in terms of um, Dick Miller's career as a whole, in terms of, of the quality of the film that's on display here, and maybe in terms of Roger Corman's career as well? Obviously, the films that he would make later were more maybe technically adept, but but in terms of just how you view it, in terms of how much you enjoy it, and also I guess just turning into what Liam was just talking about, beatnik culture, is that something that you had to do a lot of research for in order to kind of grasp a lot of that satirical side of things, or is it something you already had interest in? Oh, it was something I definitely already had interest in. I was uh, I'm more uh, you know closer to what you were saying about your relationship with the beatnik culture. I uh, I'm into it. I like it. I respect it. I don't like everything that came out of it, and I appreciate satire of it because, you know, I, who wants to see, like, posers devaluing uh, a culture that you respect? So it's nice to have those people taken down as they are in a bucket of blood. Um, no, I'm, you know, I, 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 I like, uh, I read On the Road when I was, you know, on a, on a road trip when I was 19 and uh, stuff like that. So, you know, it, I did all that kind of thing, and... Uh, by the time I got, I think I saw a bucket of blood around that same time for the first time. Um, it was shown to me, in fact, while I was working on my first Guy Madden film. So there's kind of an overlap there. It's, so I associate them. And since that time, uh, I mean, when I was 25 or so, I put, uh, I did a stage adaptation of Bucket of Blood for the Fringe Festival here. Uh, so I got to know it extremely well. I played one of the, uh, one of those sort of uh, beatnik, like, uh, you know, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern kind of guys off to mm -hmm. the side, um, and directed it and stuff and did the adaptation. And when I was, after I'd met Dick and was working on the book, I had the, I mean, the singular joy of sitting in his living room and watching the entire movie with him, which was a real experience. So I, I think, you know, on, on a, on a personal level, uh, I just love the movie to bits. Couldn't love it more. And uh, on an artistic level, I think it really is a high watermark in both Dick's and Roger Corman's careers. I think Roger did an amazing job with it. He took the script, which he says he didn't understand, or, or at least Charles Griffith says he didn't understand it, didn't really understand how to approach it as a comedy because he wasn't 
an experienced comedy director. In fact, I don't think he'd done anything you could call comedy before or intentional comedy before that. Um, but he, he, I mean, Corn was, is a very smart guy and very intuitive director and he just figured it out to, you know, to play it straight. And, and, uh, is, I think it, I think it's really amazing work, especially considering that it was shot in five days with very few resources and, uh, and all the rest of it, but it's, it's, and it never, I can watch it over and over again. I love that. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to hear your perspective, Liam, uh, in regards to the, this, maybe this era of Roger Corman movies. And I, I w- I'm not going to put words in your mouth and say that you have a lack of interest generally, but you know, my other podcast, No Budget Nightmares is about micro budget filmmaking. It's about directors with very few resources, people who very much have a let's put on a show attitude. And while there's probably more of a capitalist edge to Roger Corman's intentions at this time period, there's still something there, right? The idea of making a movie for $50,000 and five days with sets that you already have, that there's just something to me that that when I watch a movie, having the knowledge that that was part of it, it adds this extra level of enjoyment and appreciation. But I also feel like that that is not something that's necessarily built in to a movie uh, like this, especially if you don't ha- have a lot of background in the movies of the late 1950s, which again, Liam, I'm not saying that that's the case for you. But I just want to go back to that point that you were making is, why don't you have a lot of interest in Roger Corman pe- movies of this period or his career as a whole? I do have some interest in his career as a whole. And, and the, you know, maybe this is just shows where I've kind of placed him as a director. I like his later movies that are more over the top, reaching for something and not quite getting there. Um, things that feel a little more exploitation and sci-fi. Like those are just more of the things that I get excited about. And, and that's not to say because his earlier stuff is bad. It's just, um, uh, my experience of 50s genre filmmaking in general is not with a lot of excitement that uh, the 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 little bit of uh 50s filmmaking i've watched has been more bigger hollywood sort of mainstream stuff sure. uh, whereas for me you know when it comes to horror at least my tendency tends to be like new american horror or europe or european like hammer stuff uh, and that's about that's about it from then. And, 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 and when it comes to the fifties, the whole, like, um, you know, the more like creature feature kind of films, uh, sure. I've, I've just never really appreciated them. They've never really clicked with me. Um, and, and that's not meant as a objective statement. It's just, that's more of a taste thing than it is like a, they're, because they're bad. I, I don't, I don't think it's that at all. Um, and so when I hear like Corman fifties, I think, well, I mean, what is this going to be? It's just going to be something that I find myself laughing at in a way that's not laughing with sort of thing. And so again, I was still excited to watch this, but going in, I kind of thought like, Oh, this is going to be something that I'm going to think maybe I won't not, maybe not that I'm like looking down on it in some way, but, but I won't appreciate it the same way I'd appreciate um, something from later in his career. And yet, that's not what it was at all. You know, that was sort of my expectation going in. And yet watching it, I was thinking like quite the opposite, that this was really great, that I was having a lot of fun, um, that I felt like the pacing was awesome. I mean, it's, it's weird to talk about pacing in a film. That's only like an hour and five minutes. (laughs) And yet I've definitely watched some older hour and five minute movies that felt like they were three hours long, you know? And you know, this on the other hand, I, I just, I just found myself really thinking like maybe um, maybe I should go and watch other Corman stuff from this time period just because I have always been impressed with his ability as a director, even if I think some of his decisions when it comes to like budgetary decisions or uh, ripping off other people's ideas that, that sometimes those are less um, t- you know skillful and more kind of funny in retrospect. Uh, I, I I still think he's always been a pretty skillful director uh, and, and has made some things that I really enjoy. Okay, that's fa- I mean, that's fair enough. And, and I'm glad that you were watching this with an eye towards, you know, with a skeptical eye, because maybe because I've seen this movie a few times before, you know, I, I can't separate my nostalgic feelings for it. Uh, Caleb, one of the things that Dick Miller has, has been cited as saying, and it's mentioned in your book, is that he feels like that the movie is slightly hobbled by its low budget, but I don't know. When I watch it, I feel like the low budget is one of the things that I 
that adds a level of appreciation, as I was mentioning just a few moments ago. Do you do you uh, agree with Miller in regards to it? I mean, I do see what he's saying in regards to his makeup at the very end when he's supposed to be a hanging statue and maybe the statues in general. But how much do you think the movie is negatively affected by its low budget? Well, I don't I don't think too much at all. I mean, I see his point as well, and he he was his objections mainly are very specific things like that makeup or just the statues in general don't look you know, quite as shocking as they should maybe, uh, or things like that. But, uh, overall, no, I think the, the low budget part of it, it's part of its charm and part of its, uh, um, you know, what, what people who love it, love about it. I think, uh, I'm trying to, I think in other ways, more money or a lot more money would have damaged it. I mean, if you've ever Mm -hmm. seen remake, uh, which is, you know, 20 minutes longer in color, but it basically uses the same script. So, you know, it it uh, it just doesn't work too well. I, was gonna, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about that remake. Now, I remember seeing it, I think, when it came out in the mid-'90s. If I remember correctly, there was a string of Roger Corman remakes that came out around that same time. I think it maybe have been a series that was being made for TV. I think maybe the thing that's most notable about the 1995 version of A Bucket of Blood now is the cast, which has a lot. It has David Cross is in it. Uh, it actually is a very interesting cast. Generally, Shadow Stevens is in it. Yeah. Uh, and, and Paul Bartel and Mick Stoll are in it briefly as well. Um, is there anything to recommend it? It is something I was thinking about going back simply because of the kind of curiosity factor of having rewatched The Bucket of Blood and because of that interesting cast. But do you just feel like it's missing the special something that makes the original something that people appreciate so much? Yeah, it, it is miss, missing the special something, but it's not a total write-off. It's got, uh, I mean, it's as I say, it's using the same script, which is that Charles Griffith script. So it's mm-hmm. got, it's got a lot of... Uh, you know, funny bits. The cast is not like, you know, Anthony Michael Hall in the Dick Miller part is you can really, it really gives you a, an appreciation for what Dick did with the part. Um, because Anthony Michael Hall kind of plays him like, uh, I don't know, like, like, uh, Lenny, you know, from a nice band or something. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, and instead of beatniks, it takes on that, um, nineties, LA hipster culture, which is actually pretty funny. There's some pretty good, um, you know, pretty good, uh, points are scored against, uh, against that. Although the, you know, a lot of the extra running time comes from them showing performance art at, mm. at length, which is, uh, gets a little boring and shadow Stevens is actually not bad, believe it or not. Um, um, but, uh, you know, so there's little bits and pieces that you can take away from it that are worth watching, but it, overall it, uh, it really pales in comparison. Shadow Stevens, the star of Tracks, uh, a legendary VHS-era movie in my household. Um, Liam, back over to you for a moment. Now, I want to talk a little bit more in detail about Dick Miller's performance. But before we do that, the character of Walter Paisley in this movie, um, I know that that when when Dick was describing it, he probably used a little, you know, some words that maybe wouldn't be appropriate for a podcast in the year 2020. When you think of that character, Liam, having just watched this movie for the first time, we have in the description at, at the beginning of this segment, we called him dim-witted, slow. Do you think that it goes further than that? That this is a character that, that literally has no understanding of the greater situation that he's found himself in? That is he just incredibly naive and maybe a little slow? Or does it go further than that to you? Uh, hmm. That's actually I know, that's a that's a tar- tough question. I and I've kind of saddled you with it. No, no, no. That's okay. Uh, I I I think that the we're already asked to accept that my man has enough clay to cover a full human body, and <laughs> then that body will stay in that clay long enough that no one will smell the rotting flesh underneath. So the idea that then I need a full psychological evaluation to understand exactly where on the spectrum he is just doesn't really fit for me. Like he is what he is presented as he's, he, he makes a decision that is uh, kind of humorous and kind of silly and also 
dark and upsetting and he continues with it and uh is there some sense in which he understands the world maybe even a little bit more than we do uh in that the appeal that this thing has and and what that means for who he is and 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 what it means for him to no longer be a bus boy i mean he he's a he's a bus boy in a cafe that caters to people who don't think they should work and who are either so rich that they will never have to or who know how to fake it among those rich people that they can leech off of their money. So Don't I think, forget the undercover cops that are also there. Oh, and also all the undercover <laughs> cops, who, by the way, have never made an H arrest until he gets some horse by, like, mistake. Like, he's given a present of horse, and the cops now can finally make an arrest. These guys are terrible at their job. Like, okay, sorry. I don't want to go down that route because I thought it was pretty funny, that whole scenario. But the point of this whole, what I was trying to get at is, um, therefore, like, he's dim-witted, and the details of that, whether we're actually mocking someone with a serious mental uh, 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 developmental issue. Uh, you know, I just don't think that's on the table. I think what we got here is a caricature, a uh, iconic kind of figure and not someone who we should sit around and be like, I don't know, maybe he's more this or he's more that, you know what I mean? Like he, he, he is what we're presented, which, which is he, he follows the opportunities given to him and he, he acts on what he feels like he wants to do his, you know the 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 first murder like actual murder were given you know the movie really wants us to feel bad for it. like you know what i mean like the movie really isn't too concerned with giving us the humanity uh of her before we see uh her get it you know like right. i i just i just think that's not really within the context of what the film is is dealing with Caleb, one of the things that i like so much about this movie is that walter is kind of a complex character. I mean, we are supposed to have a certain amount of sympathy for him, maybe up to the point that Liam was just referring to, and maybe even past that point, because, you know, he feels that he's been trapped in this scenario where, you know, he's finally gotten this opportunity to break out, to, to he was always aspired to be this artist, and now he's in this situation and is desperate to maintain that. And not only does that work with a satirical edge, but it also makes that character all the more interesting. Do you think that... that that we are supposed to continuously find this character, Walter Paisley, to be sympathetic throughout the movie? Or is it something that you kind of waver on as you watch it? Yeah, I think by the time he's cutting the guy's head off in the lumberyard. Uh, <laughs> right, right. You're, 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 you're supposed to have, you know, be kind of wavering. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and yeah, that, that murder, the murder of the, uh, of the nasty uh, lady, the model or whatever she is, is... Um, kind of a turning point, I guess, into where you're, you're starting to go, wait a minute, he's, he's turning into, you know, before these were crimes of by accident or, or sort of perceived self-defense or whatever it is. But uh, at that point, he's, he's, he's planning murders and carrying them out. So yeah, it's, it, I think I find it a very, but it's a very gradual thing. And that's one of the movie's um, strengths is that it's not a sudden like turn to where you, he's, he's, you know, uh, sympathetic dimwit on the one hand and a, and a calculating murderer on the next. You're, I mean, it's a very gradual blurred line between those two. Um, so I think that's quite clever and, and the performance bears that up too. You know, in our last episode, we talked about The Terror, which is a movie that I think we, both Liam and I enjoyed, but has a Dick Miller performance in it that while I think he's he's very strong in it, it is his accent in particular and his manner of carrying himself is slightly at odds with the scenario that we're presented in that movie. While here, he's almost making a transformation of himself. I mean, I think maybe it's just because of the Dick Miller films that I've seen, particularly in the 70s and 80s and 90s, that he you know, has enveloped that manner in, in such a gruff exterior way that seeing him here, seeing him kind of recede and pull back... It's kind of a revelation, even coming back to it. You know, I come back every few years and watch this movie. You see that this is a full performance, and it's it's no wonder that the reviews for that performance were were strong. Do you see this as as kind of unique in his career, having you know experienced it in a much fuller scale that either Liam and I have? Is this is this uh, not that he didn't show his acting chops in other movies, but this particular way of of playing a role, something where he's playing someone very mild man mild mannered, if not dimwitted. Yeah, I mean, he usually he's, he much more often played uh, kind of tough guys or yeah. you know uh, world weary kind of uh, you know um, 
just men of the earth, you know, like, like real down to earth kind of guys. Um, and didn't often get a chance to really create a character the way, the way that he did with Walter Paisley. Um, he does, he did occasionally play, uh, you know, uh, like in, in period pieces and stuff like that, like in the terror where he's, where he's wearing these tights and, uh, stuff like that, but still has the same Bronx, Bronx, uh, you know, <laughs> accent, which is always hilarious. But it's kind of, I mean, Scorsese did that too. I mean, look, Harvey Keitel was in... Uh, Last Temptation of Christ, that's right. So, um, you know, it's not uh, uh, only Dick Miller, but it's It's always funny when he, he did that. He was a, a medieval leper in, in that one movie whose title I'm blanking on right now. But um, uh, but to get back to your, to your question, um, it's, I don't think it's totally unique, but I'm having a hard time finding in my mind any uh any any equivalent really bucket of blood does stand above um the rest of his career in a really um you know uh unique way i think in that respect it's, and so many others it, i mean that's i mean that's in, that's so interesting to think about you know this whether this is his first i mean certainly this is the first role that got this level of attention for him as an actor and then he went ahead and didn't really kind of recreate this role in a lot of uh, in a lot of the other opportunities that he was to have immediately afterwards, which is, I think, a sign of a strong actor wanting to do different things, even if he did kind of uh, comfortably move into a, at least in my own mind, a, a certain persona in some of his later movies, that this is, he, he, he didn't want to play you know, dimwits the rest of his career, and he didn't have to because he obviously was not interested in, you know, doing a remake of, of Mice and Men if that was even something that would ever have been on the table. But I think it's just interesting to think that this is one of his defining roles, but it's the kind of role that he wouldn't play very often in the rest of his career. Yeah, I mean, that's that that's a, a, a very good point. And it's one that uh, he's got a, a good friend who hired him for a number of things, a guy called Ira Bear, who makes that same point, who loves a bucket of blood but hates hates or hated it whenever dick played a kind of a schlemiel you know that kind of <laughs> uh that kind of character he thought he was totally unsuited for that sort of thing but um in the case of walter paisley you know dick pulled it off so liam we just heard from Calum. dick pulled it off this is at, at one of the great quotes from your book is that this movie is all miller no filler which i love and it's absolutely accurate. He's he's in almost every scene. This movie isn't the same movie with any other actor in that role. For this podcast, this is going to be, Liam, one of the defining movies that we cover in regards to Dick Miller's career. What did you think of his performance in this movie? Because my understanding of him has been defined by kind of like a a small slice of roles. And those roles, yeah, they they're as down to earth. They're as sometimes presented as also like a, a comedic foil, but there's a vulnerability to this character and there's a desire to be liked. And there's a, the, you know, we say dimwitted, but again, you know, the, 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 the ways that he's presented, I think is meant to be like a foil for us to understand that he's still fooling all of these stupid beatniks, you know, like hmm. he stills pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. So what does that say about them sort of thing? Uh, so, to me, this was kind of like a big surprise because it is, again, there are similarities to other characters I know him for, but there is something about this character that was not familiar to me already as a Dick Miller character. And it was such a strong performance that I just was like super impressed. And I'm already impressed. I mean, that's why we wanted to do this podcast, both the not just the breadth of the variety of his career, but also the strength of the roles that, that we knew him for. So getting to see this, I just was like so stoked that we were doing this project because I'm like, wow, Dick Miller is even better than I realized. It's it's a real interesting performance to come back and revisit because it is so different than the vision I have in my mind, as I've already referred to, of who Dick Miller is. And that's that's the kind of thing that I get tripped up on, right? That I start to think of actors in these kind of tight, narrow categories, and then you see them do something like this, and you're like, no, wait, 
they're actors. They could they they can be anything that you need them to be, especially a very talented actor like Dick Miller. And that's why it's so rewarding to go back and look at a movie like A Bucket of Blood to see you know how interesting it is in the context of 1959. How interesting it is in the context of Dick Miller's career and Roger Corman's career and Charles B. Griffith's career and uh, and a lot of the other performers that were involved in here that were part of that kind of group of actors that would appear in a, the villains of that time. It's just it's just a movie that's a real joy to be able to experience and re-experience. And it's one, I should say, um, I think probably a lot of the listeners of this show, if they've seen A Bucket of Blood, maybe they've seen it on television, maybe they've seen it on a beat-up print on a DVD compilation or something like that. But if you can, this uh, recent Olive release of this movie... Um, I mean, it, it really is kind of a revelation in terms of the, the quality of image that's on display here. You will not mistake this for a high-budget Hollywood movie of that time period. But for just, just like when it came to the terror, when you see uh, the movie as it was meant to be seen, it, it really gives you a better appreciation for the skill of the people who made it. Um, Caleb, just finishing up on A Bucket of Blood here. You've seen this movie, I'm sure, countless time, times at this point. You watched it with Dick Miller himself. You, I'm sure you have strong memories of that moment. Did you get a sense that 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 he ever got tired of this movie? I mean, the very fact that you were able to watch it with him makes me think that this is something that that he must have seen it so many times. He must have, you know, at, at some point you must get kind of exhausted. But since he, you know, not only was he so associated, associated with this character that he would use that name or other uh, directors would have that name for his uh, roles in future movies, that it be- became this one that sort of is this kind of kicking off point for a lot of the work that he would do later. What was his kind of... Uh, essential feelings about a bucket of blood near the end of his life well he didn't seem the least bit tired of watching it i don't know how many times he'd seen it maybe he hadn't seen it for a while at that point but he he readily agreed to watch it he wasn't i didn't have to twist his arm um (laughs) and he he got right into it we just sat i mean we chatted a little bit you know but it wasn't like uh he was into watching the movie um and you know absorbing the the story and and the characters even though he'd he'd been there uh, when it was being made and stuff. Um, and he had a, you know, he loved, he was very proud of Walter Paisley, not just the character, but the sort of the, as you say, the larger persona that was revisited. Uh, I mean, there's no one Walter Paisley character in all those movies, of course, <laughs> but there's, you know, he had a sign hanging in his house, Walter Paisley proprietor and stuff like that. So um, he's, uh, and one of the, one of the interesting discoveries I made in the, uh, in the book while researching while researching the book is that an essential part of the of the paisley pattern is this symbol for um uh eternity um sort of a so you know so it's it makes real sense that walter paisley himself would be eternal and would keep popping up here and there and even beyond uh the life of uh of, of the guy who played him so um, I think all of that was played into Dick's relationship with the movie. He was proud of the work that he did. He recognized it uh, as being good work. And I, I, think, I think he'd probably taken in a lot of praise for his performance over the years, as, as he should. So um, he had, a, I think, a really healthy relationship with it. And yeah, it was a real treat to watch it with him, I've got to say. I, I mean, I think that anyone uh, listening to this, if you have an interest in Dick Miller, A Bucket of Blood is a film that you must check out. And thankfully, there are uh, a lot of ways to do that. We'll link some in the show notes today. Uh, before we finish up with you, Caleb, we'll give you an opportunity to promote anything that's coming up in just a moment. But since we on this podcast are hoping to cover as much of Dick Miller's career as we possibly can, um, I wanted to, to get from the, the source, the expert yourself, what are some performances that might be a little bit undervalued, maybe underseen, that we should be on the lookout for as we go forward? Some Dick Miller performances as well. Um, I mean, the most heralded ones are bucket, A Bucket of Blood and, and The Howling and, and uh, The Terminator and stuff like that. These little performances um, that he did great work in. Um, I, I, loved, I liked seeing him uh, get some... Uh, some action and heroic stuff to do in gremlins too. That's really rewarding for the Dick Miller fan. Um, and, uh, his performance in explorers, another Joe Dante movie is, uh, very touching. I, I find it, uh, it goes right to the heart, you know? And, um, I mean, those are all fairly well known. His, 
performance he's not really not really suited to, but does a good job anyway. Is um, oh boy, it's a space one that that Corman made around that time, and I'm sorry, I'm just blanking on the title. Um, he plays like a scientist. He plays an intellectual. He didn't get to play intellectuals very very often, but he plays one in uh, in that and does a good job. And Sorority, um, it's called Sorority Girl is another movie where he plays the male lead and uh, he's basically playing um, a more intelligent sort of beat type character. And he does a great job with that too. Um, uh, is the space movie, is the space movie you're thinking of war of the satellites War of the satellites? That's the one. I don't know why. I guess all of the, the, the movies and titles kind of <laughs> mush together in, in the mind sometimes but yes war of the satellites is the one where he plays the intellectual scientist and uh and uh, it's worth watching for sure and of course i mean you can't uh his vacuum cleaner salesman and not of this earth i mean that's another heralded one it's not exactly <laughs> under the radar but it's worth checking out if you haven't seen it it's very funny well i want to thank you Caleb, for taking time in this very <laughs> difficult situation that we're all going through right now to talk about Dick Miller. I know that it's probably something that 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 you're not necessarily sick of doing, but it's uh, I'm sure we've gone over a lot of material that you've you've gone over many times in the past. For those who have not checked it out, You Don't Know Me But You Love Me, The Lives of Dick Miller is absolutely a must read. As I mentioned before, you obviously have an interest in Dick Miller if you're listening to this, but uh, even if that you're just developing an interest, even if you just have seen some of the the wider profile roles, this is a book that intersects, as I mentioned, with so many other creators that I'm sure that you also have interest in. There's so many wonderful anecdotes. There, It's a really interesting and uh, um, fascinating portrayal of a really talented actor and one that I'm sure we're going to be referring to a lot on this podcast going forward. Caleb, what are you working on now? Where can people find your work going forward? Well, uh, I'm working on, thanks for your kind words, by the way, about the book. That's very nice to hear. And I'll never get sick of talking about Dick Miller. So, <laughs> um, but as for, I'm working on a, a documentary project and, a and, a and, a and, a, and a, another book project. That's sort of a general history of feature films, I guess is the best way to mm. describe it. Um, and that's the kind of thing I'm working on. So hopefully in the not too distant future, some more, uh, books and movies will be will be coming out, and uh, and hopefully they're worthwhile. <laughs> I'm sure they will be. Caleb, is there any place that people can follow you on social media? Well, they can certainly follow me on uh, Instagram, and I'm on the on the Facebook also. But uh, yeah, the Instagram. Um, maybe I'll uh, I'll plug There's Candy. If people want to. Uh, it's this weird drawing game Instagram. Uh, uh, thing that I have going. It's just there's candy, all one word. There's candy. Right. Uh, and I, I'm looking for more drawings to put on there's candy. So once you get to, once you get a look at it, you'll see where what that is. And uh, maybe someone will send me some drawings. I hope so. Well, I hope so too. We'll certainly link that in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, Liam, uh, this show, Cinema Smorgasbord, can be found in a lot of different locations. Do you want to tell us where those are? Well, they can uh, check out cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X for this podcast as well as a family of other podcasts. If they just want to head on over to our website, they can check us out singularly as well. And also contact us there, right? Do we have a contact form on there? Yes, there is a contact form. You can email us on the cinemasmorgasbord.com website. We also have uh, Twitter, cinemasmorg. Uh, and we have a Facebook group as well. If you just search Cinema Smorgasbord, you should be able to find us pretty easily. They can also follow you on Twitter, uh, Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Terrific. Thank you. And of course, you as well, Liam. Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. We all know you rule, Liam. Why not uh, reinforce that with your Twitter handle over there? Uh we love feedback. If you can, go over to iTunes, leave us a review, Cinema Smorgasbord. Tell your friends. We appreciate it very much. You, uh, you're the folks who uh, make this job worth doing. So though, at this point, uh, just the human contact is enough of a reason for Liam and I to get on Skype and chat. Uh, we'll be back very soon with another Dick Miller classic. Good night, everybody. I will talk to you of art, for there is nothing else to talk about. For there is nothing else. Life is an obscure hobo bumming a ride on the omnibus of art. 
Burn gas buggies and whip your sour cream of circumstance and hope. And go ahead and sleep your bloody heads off. Creation is. All else is not. What is not creation is Graham crackers. Let it all crumble to feed the creator. The artist is. All others are not. A canvas is a canvas, or a painting. A rock is a rock, or a statue. A sound is a sound, or is music. A creature is a creature, or an artist.